You're listening to a podcast by Mission Field USA, a church planting initiative of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. For more information and resources, visit lcms.org slash church planting. Hello and welcome to another Mission Field USA podcast. I am your host, the Reverend Dr. Mark Larson, Manager of Church Planting for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. And we have a great topic today discussing Diaspora Mission, which is reaching out with the gospel to immigrants who have been moved by God to a new place other than their original homeland. And our guest today is the Reverend Dr. Matthew Busey, who serves as the Executive Director at Immigrant Mission Field Network based in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Welcome, Dr. Busey. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be talking with you today. Fantastic. We're glad to have you. And this is a great topic for church planting and outreach in general. While people have always been changing their addresses throughout human history, it really seems that reaching immigrants in our country is very, very relevant today as it ever has been, maybe uh, even more so. So we see this phenomenon in the Bible. So what's the biblical background for this? Well, we can go straight to the words of Jesus who gives us all the mission fields that the church will ever have. And it's a pretty small list, and it's right there in the first chapter of Acts, as surely as he says uh, to the apostles, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And there you have the, the three mission fields, the Jewish mission field, Jerusalem and Judea, the Samaritan mission field, Samaria, and to the end of the earth, that's a very Old Testament way of, of saying all the nations, all the Gentiles, all the places where the faraway places where all, all the Gentiles are. So that all the different types of Gentiles are all one mission field. And, and the, the New Testament will, you know, differentiate, you know, the different, you know, lands and the different mission fields, but it's all one Gentile mission field. And so all these three mission fields, they remain open until uh, the Lord comes again in glory. Yeah, indeed they do. Some other places in Acts would also kind of talk about this Gentile field being opened up. Uh, so, for example, with, with Philip? Yes, Philip unofficially opens the Gentile mission field. And you can tell that, that the words of Jesus are very, very important, that, that Luke will arrange the book of Acts to demonstrate this, as soon as Philip is doing, has opened the Samaritan mission field, right after that, you have the Holy Spirit leading him to the chariot of the Ethiopian eunuch. So mm -hmm. he's unofficially opening the Gentile mission field because, I mean, as soon as you have the Samaritans, then you have the end of the earth. And for the Greek way of speaking, anything that far south as Ethiopia, which, which to the Greek way of thinking was anything south of Egypt, basically. Well, that's the ends of the earth. And so there's the Ethiopian eunuch, and Philip has no witnesses with him, but there's the opening of the, the Gentile mission field. The official opening, of course, is with Peter. Mm -hmm. Peter has witnesses with him when he's at the house of Cornelius the Roman centurion. And these witnesses are there to help bring the report back to the Jerusalem church. But then as soon as you see the Gentile mission field officially opened, you have the Church of Antioch described very clearly as, uh, though 
many were scattered through the persecution after Stephen was put to death by stoning. At Antioch, there were some who preached the gospel to the Hellenists also, which means also to the Greek-speaking Gentiles. So you have there in the in the church in Antioch, uh, the Jewish mission field going on and being engaged, and the Gentile mission field being there and being engaged. Absolutely. It sounds like the gospel can't be stopped. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And it shows the, the Lord's hand in all of it when the the, the, the scattering of the church is described. We know that the, re, the, the occasion was the persecution after Stephen was put to death, but the word is, you know, scattering abroad as the same word we get the word diaspora from or dispersion. That We get both of those words from this Greek word. And if the occasion is the persecution, well, who's doing it? Well, you have to look at the results. The results are all these churches that spring up in the places where the people are dispersed because they carry the gospel with them. So who's doing the scattering? Well, the, the Lord is doing the scattering. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. Yeah, very good. And so so Peter and James, they have been a part of this. And so they're addressing the diaspora community. So what role do Peter and James have as this spreading of the gospel continues? Well, Peter and James are demonstrating that things are never holding still and in ways that we can't really anticipate either. And that's because the preaching of the gospel spreads to people. James starts his epistle to the 12 tribes in in the dispersion, Mm is how it says. And following the lead of uh, David Scare in his commentary on James, if this is talking to those who are scattered by a persecution, well, we know of one, and that's the persecution that happened after Stephen was put to death. So the, the simplest explanation is these are the Jewish Christians scattered after that persecution. Mm-hmm. And he's writing to the 12 tribes in dispersion. That's something that, if you know the Old Testament, will, will ring a lot of bells and have a lot of resonance. Absolutely. So he's talking to that um, that that mission field dispersed in that way. But Peter will also start his epistle in a pretty similar way. He will start his by saying, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. But Peter's not talking to a Jewish Christian church um, dispersed by persecution. He's talking to Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians dispersed by persecution, but he's talking to them as the the, the dispersion of, of God's people. Mm-hmm. Now, very good. by extension, of course, that means that moving around from place to place isn't a, a, a minor sort of issue, but it's the history of God spreading and establishing the preaching of Christ, whether by persecution or even not by persecution. If the gospel is there where people move or if people move with the gospel to a place where the gospel needs to be preached. Both both yeah, cases. Right. Yeah, excellent. Very good. Very good. I have to say it does remind me a bit of the Tower of Babel. I don't know if you've heard that explanation before that it was very insightful to me. It was a number of years ago that someone said, you know, in Sunday school we're taught that the, the sin of the Tower of Babel was uh, pride because they built a tower to, to the heavens. And it was, but uh, but when you read the text of scripture, it talks about 
how they built this tower, lest we be spread across the face of the earth. And so that was really defiant against God's plan to be spread and fill the earth. Exactly. So, uh, very good. So, I know that Wilhelm Leahy also spoke of these missions. Uh, you know, maybe he adds a little bit of flavor to this uh, conversation. I mean, that's the point as well. When you have the, the, the command to fill the earth and subdue it, you also have the fact that where people go, they are to proclaim the, the gospel in all places. So, this was definition of mission. It was, he said, mission is nothing but the one church of God in motion. Yeah, very good. Well, great way to put that. Now, I suppose not all immigrants are going to be the same. Now, what insights uh, do those who study immigration have to offer as we think about uh, church planting among immigrants? Well, you don't need to know all the ins and outs about the modern phenomenon of global immigration. But having an understanding of the mechanism of how this works helps for informed engagement in these mission fields through the church. There's only so many types of immigrants, and it's basically measured in terms of economic activity, I suppose you'd say. There's you know, labor, entrepreneurial, you know, business owners, professional class, doctors, lawyers, and so on. And that's it. Even if someone's, you know, has mm-hmm. a student visa, if they stay in the in their new country after their studies are done, then it's usually for purpose of, you know, one of those three things, you know, for starting a business or being in a professional class or, 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 or some job of some sort. So mm-hmm. you only have three types, really. But then the reasons that people immigrate are, I mean, they're really the same that they, they, they've ever been. And it's opportunity, uh, opportunity in terms of economic opportunity, or being reunited with family members on a family-sponsored visa, or in escaping danger through political asylum. Mm-hmm. So very good. And then, then these the generations keep coming though after the immigrants arrive. What can you uh, tell us about those generations? Well, we we measure the ways um, that people uh, engage the two cultures: the culture of you know they uh, back home and the culture of their new home. We, we measure these things according to the engagement across the generations of immigration. The, the first generation isn't the first generation to be born in a place. It's the first generation to arrive in a place. That often mm-hmm. sort of gets confused. But if you grow up in another country and then move to uh, a new country, then you are the first generation in that country. And your engagement with uh, your new culture will be, you know, of a sort and it will be uh, uh, a lot to take in all at once. And then, of course, the second generation is born to the first generation. But even between that, you have the category of the, the 1.5 generation. And that's when you did some of your growing up and some of your education in your, the home country and some in your, your new home, your new country. And so you've got the engagement with two different cultures going on in that way. And then the second generation is the ones who are born to the first generation. So whether you were born overseas or not, you did all of your growing up in the new country where your parents emigrated to. And then the third generation, there's a, sh- a short 
sort of saying it goes back to the 1930s what the what the second generation wishes to forget the third generation wishes to remember no no say that again that, that was pretty profound what the second generation wishes to forget the third generation wishes to remember okay very good and that yeah. speaks to the engagement between the the two cultures where the, the second generation it's often in, in, a, in a rebellious way reacts against their their the the culture their parents grew up in the third generation not being raised by that first generation to come over will interact with it as you know the their grandparents culture and want to know about it in a hands-on way that 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 even their parents wouldn't wouldn't have would have in a different way so the, the third generation then has a sort of bigger interest and even you know and we don't keep track after the third generation. And I think one of the more important reasons for that is that's where the memory stops. The mm. third generation can have a, a living memory of the first you know, generation to come over in the family. But past that, you interact with it in a, in a much different way. You know, my, I mean, personally speaking, my grandfather, you know, his grandfather uh, came over from Germany. Um, but I you know, would just hear about these things, you know, from him. And he, as a third generation, taught German in the public high school system for many, many years. And in fact, went and got a, a master's in it. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, and personally for me, I mean, I, I would be fourth generation also that my great-grandfathers, on a, on a number of the branches, not all of them, they were the most recent immigrants. And so, like my grandfather, like my father would have known his grandparents who were immigrants, but, but I don't. So, yeah. And then also I serve a Slovak congregation, a historically Slovak congregation, and that immigration was later. And so it's kind of interesting to see that I think I'm working with a number of third generation folks who were very interested in remembering what their parents were trying to forget, as you would say it. Mm -hmm. And keeping track of that becomes quite, quite useful. And at the same time, it's affected by what the replenishment levels are for people are, when it comes to the first generation, as time, as years go by, is it the same amount of people who are coming over or less or more? Or has the immigration from you know that country stopped? And that will all have an impact on uh, how the engagement with the culture goes as, you know, time and energy is devoted to catching and supporting people as they arrive, along with the, the, the energy and, and time devoted to bringing up the second and third generations within that interaction between the two cultures. So it's all a lot to keep track of. Right, right. So, <clears throat> so in the congregation I serve, the, the Slovaks are no longer getting off the train and they haven't for a long time, but it's, but Hispanic immigration continues. And so you're saying that's one of the implications. So, so that more Hispanics keep coming, what would that mean in terms of outreach? Well, there's different ways of engaging the two cultures. And you can break those down into about three categories as well. There's the category where you can sort of live and work among your diaspora community almost completely. And there are some places, you know, some in the U.S. where you only need to know Spanish to get around. But that's just one of the options. Another option is people uh, live and work in a more spread out way in a city, but they keep the cultural ties 
of their diaspora community. And those are worked through gathering together for various events and other type of, of things. And in some ways, it's tracked by, by not engagement. When the, the third generation doctor interacts more yeah. with you know, other doctors than with the, the, the culture of their, of their family. It, there's right. much that could be said, but it does show that there's a lot of variables, but not so many categories that we can't wrap your head around it. Right, right. Very good. Very good. Okay, so thinking about engaging the mission field, do you have some strategies for us on how we can be about this diaspora mission? Well, I think we should first go and learn from our Lutheran confessions. This this is nothing especially new in the life of, church, of the church, even though we live in an age of you know global migration and an age of great connection and ability to communicate with people across very large spaces. At the same time, we're dealing with established facts about the life of the church when it comes to engaging with diaspora mission fields. Uh, mm -hmm. In the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, the article on the church, Article 7 and 8, Melanchthon will speak about, you know, the church, the, the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, as the, the congregation of saints, you know, gathered from all nations by the Holy Spirit. But he also speak of the church as uh, a people scattered throughout the world. Uh, that means both found all over the world and also moving all over the world, because that's how church ends up being found all over the world. The church, mm -hmm. <laughs> where, the, where the, the people go with the gospel, there the church is, where the Holy Spirit is working through the word preached and the sacraments administered, there is the church. And yeah, we have, yeah. you know, uh, a great tool in the small catechism to be able to uh, use that, that, that unity of the church across ethnicities. We have the, the small catechism. And how, so explain a little bit more about that. How would that be used? Well, here's this brief summary of the scriptures mm -hmm. uh, that we subscribe to together for the sake of instruction for all in the faith. And using that is a point of unity across cultures for diaspora communities. We may not mm -hmm. have this style of dress in common. We may not have this, you know, down, you know, this up and down the line in common. But here mm -hmm. we have the, we have the small catechism. If you learned it in this language, I learned it in this language, but we have we have that in common. Yeah, and then in my first parish, of course, they all mentioned that they had to memorize it in both German and English. Some of them, so <laughs> <laughs> that makes you versatile. The more you're able to operate in these different contexts, both culturally and linguistically, that makes you versatile. Nothing to get too up in arms about, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it was you know it was uphill in the snow both ways sort of a discussion, as I recall it. But I agree with you that it's wonderful to be able to uh, be fluent in, in other languages and other cultures. So it's just, it's fantastic. So, so the sort, sort of confessional insight. Now, how would you uh, continue to reach out to these communities? When it comes to the people, you just follow the people, uh, which is in engaging with diaspora communities in terms of where they go and who they are. Mm -hmm. And in terms of where they go, it's not just the statistics of who's where, but it's also engaging with the, the processes of how people arrive in a place, where, how, of where people arrive when they first enter a country and where they go from that place. And yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, right. I was just going to say, it's you know, my experience with you know a lot of ethnic outreach has been that um, are they more mobile than a lot of our uh, than say the the majority population? Well, the way it gets studied is the the way the places the people arrive, they arrive in terms of just plain housing availability, and mm-hmm. they arrive in terms of where there's already an established diaspora community. Now, as the years go by and the community grows through more people arriving or through, you know, growing through, you know, family growth, then you have the spread of these communities across cities and one from from one city to another. And they happen, again, in terms of, you know, available housing and other uh, services like education and such. And they also still happen through networks, you know, social connections Mm -hmm. in terms of, oh, well, you know, there's a good community over here, a good neighborhood over here. So as people are uh, becoming more established, then things just sort of spread out for those very practical reasons. It doesn't make people necessarily more mobile, but it means that the, the, the bonds of the diaspora communities remain quite tight. And mm-hmm. along those bonds, those are the channels where church planting can happen. Mm-hmm. Very cool. So that reminds me, uh, when I was in Denver, the Sudanese arrived in Denver, but it, many of them ended up out on the plains because of the availability of jobs. So it seemed like they were they were moving pretty constantly. And so you're saying we need to follow them. And then, mm-hmm. so then there's a chance to not only plant a church in Denver, but then maybe in this case, they ended up in Fort Morgan. If you mind the places where people initially arrive, then you can be minding the places where people move to and the church can be strengthened in both places. Yeah, you know, yeah, where, where places become hubs for different diaspora communities are very important places to mind. In Australia, uh, where I lived for a few years, the South Sudanese community was very much centered around Melbourne and there was a community in Adelaide, but that sort of contracted after a while because the, the strength of the community in Melbourne was such that people relocated there, not just for economic reasons, but also for social reasons. Yeah, very good. So as we continue to learn about the the immigrant population, what can the three estates tell us about that? It's a good way to help learn people. I mean, learning about people, yes, but you're, you're learning people. And you do that through, well, the only estates of life, you know, social interaction with people that there are. This is a good insight of, of Lutheran theology. We have the three estates, and that's, that's what we've got. The estate of the family, the estate of the church, and the civic estate. Mm-hmm. And in learning those things, in the, in the estate of the church, as you're dealing with people, you're dealing with people according to family matters, you know, family, you know, both here and, you know, spread around the world, you know, where you can talk to people, well, you know, here you are, and do you have any family anywhere else? Oh, yeah, I've got family in this country, in this country, and back home as well. And, mm-hmm. Or questions about, you know, food and dress and other sort of questions, just learning about people. And then also learning about people back home. You know, it's the same way if someone asks you about such things. Oh, oh I'm so happy to share. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. So that's how, that's the, the way that it, it operates. Okay, very good. Now, now, an obvious challenge to reaching out to um, new populations is the possible language barrier if they don't speak English. You've probably heard the joke that a person who speaks three languages is trilingual and a person who speaks two languages is, is bilingual. 
and a person that speaks one language is an American. Yeah. Have you heard that one? Yeah, I told that joke once, and 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 the person was from Liberia, and it's like, well, we only have English in Liberia. I'm like, oh, great. Well, it's not just America, but yeah, okay. that's, I, I I take the point. Yeah, 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 very good, very good. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it's not just us, but but I'm a little surprised by that that there weren't. Well, in Liberia, yeah, I guess I can understand that. Uh, but anyway, so how do we address that language challenge, in particular, in terms of worship? Well, if it's the thing that you fixate on, that's probably not going to uh, get too far. But if we start with a, a good, solid theological foundation, like our baptism, then, then we'll get somewhere. As mm-hmm. God has joined many peoples into one through baptism, well, the same thing happens through the, the liturgy of the church of the baptized. Dr. Schultz, Dr. Klaus Detlef Schultz, frequent guest on this podcast in his book, you know, Mission from the Cross, he points out this sort of similar link. He says, the church that believes in the the Unisancta, the one holy Catholic apostolic church, should worship according to that belief and guard against any innovation that denies that truth. And that's just a call back to the church in Antioch there in Acts. We know that there around the Lord's table were Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians of many different uh, backgrounds. And yet uh, we know that from when Paul publicly calls out Peter for withdrawing from being together at the, the potluck after church and, and says this has uh, such an important bearing on what goes on in the divine service that the gospel itself is at stake. So any sort of focusing on that reality, well, that means that it's going to have a bearing on what goes on in the in the service. Mm-hmm. Yeah, our worshiping together is a point of our unity in Christ based on our baptism is what I hear you saying. <laughs> exactly right. Okay. So it's something to focus on that the issues of language don't overrule this issue of the, the unity of the faith, that though they present challenges, they're not challenges that are insurmountable. If they were challenges that were insurmountable, you'd see that behavior in the church in the New Testament, but you do not. The, the mission fields were all going on at the same time and in the same place and gathered around the same table, the same, mm-hmm. the Lord's table. Mm-hmm. Very good. Very good. So how can the way we worship, you know, with ordinaries and propers kind of be integrated into all of this? <laughs> well, we, we focus on the, the Spirit's work in gathering together the church, but along with that, we have these tools. We have the divine service and minor services. We have the divine service, which ties people together in the same communion, the communion of the baptized who subscribe to the small catechism. And this tying together is both between different ethnicities and also across generations. It's tying together of the first generation with the second generation and so forth. And it's a tying together of non-immigrant ethnicities with immigrant ethnicities and of different, different, different immigrant ethnicities with mm-hmm. each other. But at the same time, we have the minor services. The, not the divine service, but they're tied to the divine service. They arise from it, and they're never to separate from it. And these, well, 
they can allow for lots of different variation according to cultures in terms of language or preaching. You know, the well here the the divine service takes place in the the common language of the of the the place where the church is. But this uh, minor service here, this matins or or this you know morning prayer service, this takes place in this language, and the preaching is in this language, either directly or by translation, and just having that clearly uh, spelled out serves good good purposes. You know, and, and there's lots of precedent for that in in uh, Lutheran church history as well. You know, if if you've got you know a school or something, well, then matins goes on in the morning for this sake, or or matins would go take place in the cities in, in Latin for the sake of the of the students studying at the, the schools in that in that city. And it was a cultural reason that they made use of this minor service in this way. And we can just follow that example. Yeah, very good. Very good. So I wonder if we can make this practical for a moment. <laughs> I'm at an English-speaking congregation, which probably doesn't surprise you. And five, six months ago, we had this uh, very nice gentleman stop by our congregation. And he's Congolese. And doesn't speak much English, but he comes every Sunday. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we're just so pleased and happy to have him with us. So I don't know if you have any practical advice on how we can continue to work with this fine man and disciple him and welcome him and and integrate him into the life of the church. Well, first know that if there's a Congolese community in the city where you are, that most likely there's some good strong bonds into that community through this through this fine a fine young man mm-hmm. and at the same time as the lord wills would that mission field be opened up to that diaspora community and mm-hmm. certainly with someone who can easily operate in that culture you've got uh, a big advantage over not having such a person around and should the lord open such a mission field there are ways uh, to use the tools that we have in worship to both encourage people in their engagement between the the two cultures because well you know cultures are important but the the whole the the Christian faith is what's most most important and where we can find mm-hmm. our unity so if you're from an ethnicity immigrant ethnicity where english is uh, not a primary language you have the tools of what we call the ordinaries in the service. Those are the parts that don't change. They're the constants mm-hmm. that you can participate in. And sort of despite your level of language proficiency in English, you can both easily learn it and it look forward to and anticipate it. You know, the Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. You're both, it's both aiding you in your language acquisition and tying you to the congregation that you're saying it with. And um, encouraging you because it doesn't change from week to week. You know it's coming and, and you rejoice to join in with it and you rejoice because it has a reminder of saying the Kyrie, the, the Lord have mercy, as mm-hmm. you learned it growing up. It has all of those functions and we can put them to use. Yeah, very good. Not that we only have ordinaries. We also have mm-hmm. propers. <laughs> yeah. That's you know, since those are the parts of the service that, that change from week to week, that allows for different languages since these parts change from week to week anyways. The the different readings change, the different prayers change every week, what we sing changes every week. 
provided that translations are always provided as uh, as feasible. You have, you know, hymns and choir pieces can take place in many different languages. Scripture readings, they can be in different languages. It can be as simple as bringing your Bible along and say, all right, I've, we're going to read from uh, Book of Romans in, in English. I've got my my Bible in Swahili. I can find Romans in that very easy and we'll be just go. fine. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Very good. It requires well, a bit of godliness and, and sacrifice on the part of all, yeah. but it's not impossible. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's absolutely true. Dr. Buzzi, I wonder if you could tell me, you're serving as the executive director of the Immigrant Mission Field Network. It sounds intriguing. Can you tell me a little bit more about that ministry and how that might be a blessing to people who are uh, working in the field of diaspora mission? Absolutely. The Immigrant Mission Field Network exists to encourage congregations of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod to engage in as many immigrant mission fields at the same time as possible for all to hear the Word of God in faith. Fantastic. And we can do that through good scholarly resources and good networks of connection between mission fields across across the country, connected to homelands and also of different mission fields connecting one to another in the same place. Well, fantastic. And we'll have uh, contact information for Dr. Boozy uh, connected to this podcast. So we uh, encourage people to be in contact for this wonderful resource. So thank you very much uh, for your dedication, insight, and contribution on this important topic. And we also thank all of the listeners to this Mission Field USA podcast. And be sure and tell your friends about this resource. And may God bless. Thanks for listening to the Mission Field USA podcast for church planting. Visit lcms.org slash church planting for other resources and information to share your ideas and to contact us. The Mission Field USA podcast is a production of the Office of National Mission of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod in partnership with KFUO Radio. The Lord be with you.